as we, uh, we come to the final of the seven letters uh, that Jesus has uh, penned through the, through the Apostle John, who had that tremendous and glorious and all, uh, all of time uh, encapsulating vision there when he saw Jesus uh, appear to him and, and so many wonderful uh, things that transpired and, and unfolded and were revealed to him concerning the covenant of Jesus that he was bringing in. We have started uh, uh, with these letters that Jesus spoke uh, in order to speak to those seven churches in Asia Minor, in the, uh, around the Mediterranean there, in order to correct their faults, encourage their weakness, uh, not encourage their weaknesses, but encourage them in their, in their weakness and their suffering, uh, and of course confirm them by his presence. How, how often we've been seeing the, the big theme running through is that Jesus is present in and with his churches no matter the state and no matter the suffering that they are in. We're thankful for that reality, of course, ourselves. Let's read from verse 14 in chapter 3, Revelation 3, 14 to the end of the chapter. <clears throat> and to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I reprove, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers... I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with the Father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. May God bless the reading of his own word in our midst this evening. This Laodicean church is famous. If you know of one of the churches in the first seven in these chapters of Revelation, you know Laodicea. You know the phrase lukewarm that is thrown around somewhat in evangelical churches. This is a familiar church, but I want to take it out of the ancient world and sort of plant it in the modern world for us so that we have kind of a taste. And yes, this is my interpretation, but you won't get a better one. So this is my interpretation on what the Laodicean church in 2022 seems like. This is the church where you go more to hang out with your friends than to meet with the living God. This is a church where the most controversial issue that the members ever have to really sort out is the color of the carpet or the instruments that we use in worship or the style of music. That's, that's the, big, the big thing, the big ticket item. Their statement of faith has a lot of phrases like no creed but the Bible, non-denominational, and relationship not a religion. Their songs are technically songs and they are filled with vague themes such as mountains they may mention God every now and then. Valleys, there's a lot of valleys in these songs. Uh, uh, fire, chains breaking, that's all in there, that's good. Uh, so yeah, technically they're songs that you could squeeze some worship out of. 
There's a token nice guy who gets up and speaks about things like character and relationships a lot. He sort of has two rotating sermons from different verses each week, basically. Uh, His favorite words are authenticity, doing life, getting real with God, and you. He loves talking about you, you and your Goliath, you and your flood, you and your storm, you and your mountain, you and your valley. It's always about you. You and your trauma, you and your dragon, it's always you. And most applications, most sermons is just, let's all trust God a bit more. You're always glad that he never mentions your sins in his sermon so that you don't have to feel bad at all for a few moments a week so that you can continue on the way you live. Conversations after church always drop dead if you try and talk about the sermon or the passage that was apparently preached on. Uh, If you ever... Uh, do try and bring up a conversation about doctrine or correct somebody about their understanding of the Bible. A slightly older Christian, well-meaning, tells you that they once knew a legalist who tried to bring theology into church and it ended up very divisively. So just back off from that and remember God loves a childlike faith. You always have to keep a mental note of which of your friends is sleeping together so that you don't put your foot in it in any of the conversations Men in the church are generally little boys, mentally and spiritually, who don't work very hard in their jobs and don't know the Bible very well. When you do get guys who do both, they seem to take their families elsewhere. The guys who work hard but don't know the Bible very well tend to just be very worldly and selfish and not digging into the mission of the church, generally neglecting their families. Evangelism is either unheard of or it's left to the sign that we have up out on the street. That's, that's reaching the unsaved for us. The women in the church, if they're spiritual, they tend to float to the top of leadership because the men won't. And those who aren't so spiritual find other sinful ways of getting attention. If the church closed tomorrow, and this is how you define a lukewarm church, if the church closed tomorrow, the community would have no idea. It would make not a lick of difference to the society and the community that that church is in because, after all, it was lukewarm. There was no difference walking from the world into this church and back out again. There was just no tangible difference or key markers between the church and the world. All in all, though, people find it's a good church, except for the fact that we don't really know how to define a church or we don't have metrics for how to judge a church, whether it's good or bad, but it's a good church and it seems like Jesus loves us and we love Jesus and let's call it a day. That's pretty okay. That's your 21st century Laodicean church. I'm praying it doesn't sound familiar to you. Although, if we're honest, likely each one of us has nodded at some of that and gone, yeah, yeah, that's, that's my background. Yeah, that's where I've come from. You're not allowed to say that's what you see here. We have deacons to remove you. But no, of course, we're all far too familiar with that. And so today as we come to the, the very first, the original Laodicean church, the prototype of lukewarmness, we first have to start where Jesus starts. And that is that we meet the Lord that they profess to worship. We meet the Savior that they profess to know. And we find this in chapter 3, verse 14, where Jesus says to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the Amen the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Jesus calls himself here that the very first title that he gives to himself is the amen. 
Now, the only other place in Scripture where the word amen is used in its own context as a name is Isaiah 65, verse 16. And it's being spoken of as Yahweh. So right off the bat, again, as soon as you do any biblical theology, we are immediately met with the reality, Jesus is Yahweh. No wiggle room. If it wasn't so confusing in so many different imageries, Revelation, I think we've found, is just one of the best books to go to to see that Jesus taught himself to be the divine God, Yahweh, of the Old Testament. Well, here he is again saying, I am that God that Isaiah spoke of. And yet he's also picking up on things that we're going to pick up on ourselves soon that Paul speaks of. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, we read that Jesus, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, that all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why through him we utter our amen to, the, to God for his glory. So if you believe that there are purposes that God is yet to accomplish and things that God is doing according to the Old Testament prophecies and they will find fulfillment outside of and distinctly from Jesus and his work in the gospel... That's not a promise of God. You're reading it wrong. Jesus is the amen, the culmination, the center point of all of God's purposes. Every promise finds their yes and rightly interpreted yes in Jesus. You'll see why I drive that home, that point home in just a little bit. But the second thing he calls himself is the faithful and true witness. This matches up perfectly with Chapter 1, verse 5. Do you remember when when John was speaking of of Jesus and he says that he is uh, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness? And and we were seeing there that that was speaking of his prophetic witness, his prophetic role, his prophetic office. That Jesus is our king, he is our priest, he is our prophet, fulfilling all of those offices from the Old Testament. And in Jesus being the witness or the prophet, revelation language for prophetic speech is witness. So here's Jesus as the prophet, the witness, the one who speaks from God to us. He is faithful. He's contrasted to Laodicea here where he's the one who passes on the message that he was entrusted with. Laodicea is a faithless witness. But he's the true witness in that everything he says is true of God and he fully reveals God to us. So he's the faithful witness. That's, that's just summary from chapter 1 verse 5. We get to the very interesting point here when Jesus calls himself the beginning of God's creation. No, Jesus is not a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon. He is not saying that he is the first thing that God created. In fact, he's not even speaking of the first creation at all. He's not talking Genesis 1. You might read this and think, this, unlike well, except for last week, there was, there was, there was, a, there was, a, there was a distinction there. But, but all of the rest of the letters start out with Jesus introducing himself using language and imagery that is stolen directly from the chapter one vision of Jesus, right? The blazing eyes, the white hair, the white sash, the, the bronze feet, the, 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 the spirit, the, the, the elders in his hand, all that stuff. We, he's usually pulling from those and we see this and we go, well, this has no recollection of chapter one. Nowhere in that vision do we see Jesus as the beginning of God's creation, but it is from chapter one. It's just that it's from earlier in chapter one, not in, the, not in the vision that John has of Jesus, chapter one, but go back to chapter one, verse five. In chapter one, verse five, 
John calls him, we, we referenced this briefly before, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead. And now in chapter 3, verse 14, he is the, the faithful witness, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. So the beginning of God's creation is actually paralleling the firstborn from the dead. Friends, he's not talking about the first Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 creation. He's talking about the new creation that was kick-started in his resurrection. So as to say, I am the firstborn of the new creation is the same as saying, I'm the firstborn from the dead. This whole world is dead. It's going to be recreated. I'm the first part of that. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is the beginning of the new creation. He's the whole point of the new creation in the future. He's the one the new creation centers on. He's the one that the new creation is made for to glorify. We find the new creation culminated not ultimately in the physical new world created, but in him. In Jesus is the beginning and the end of the new creation. The recreation that Jesus will bring about when he returns. Yes, Jesus will return bodily and he will recreate the heaven and the earth literally and physically to a cellular, atomic, subatomic level. The curse will be removed, world recreated. That is not the only sense that we as Christians should think of the new heaven and the new earth. As Jesus is speaking here, we realize that the new creation, which will be consummated, or which will, which will flower into perfection at Jesus' second coming, started with the empty tomb on the first resurrection Sunday. He is the firstborn of the dead. He is the beginning of that new creation. <clears throat> Do we have to then wait for him to come back to taste the new heaven and the new earth? No. We receive a taste of, we receive a a clue of, we receive an essential reality of what the new heaven and the new earth will be like when we come and we know God through Jesus. Another thing and another reason we can see this theme just, just crashing down upon us in the wave that is this very first verse is because of Isaiah chapter 65, which speaks of the new heavens and the new earth. Now, it's verse 16 that we've already seen Jesus quote from. Verse 16 of Isaiah 65 says, I am the God of the Amen. I am the Amen. Going on, in verse 17. Now, your ESV version, by the way, might say God of truth. Same Hebrew word, just being being translated slightly differently. But uh, in verse 17, the immediate subsequent context is, For behold... I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. This is the the prophecy of the Old Testament. This is the promise of the Old Testament, that Jesus, being the amen, being the faithful and true witness, would would finally bring about an uncursed world, undoing what Adam did, saving many souls, and and, and recreating the whole earth, but it's already begun, and we lose so much if we merely think of all of this And all that Revelation says about the new heaven and the new earth as something purely literal and merely futuristic. It is both. So if you can bear it, allow me to say this. Jesus is saying, in this first introduction right here, Jesus is saying, all of God's promises center on me. 
including the promise of the new heaven and the new earth. I am the God of the amen who has brought in the new heavens and the new earth, now in a spiritual sense, and at my return in a physical finalizing sense. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, I know some of you are extremely excited by all of these glorious, beautiful promises of how Old Testament culminate into Jesus and this kaleidoscope of prophecies that point to him. But let's find our context. Why is Jesus opening up with this when he's speaking to the Laodicean church? I would posit, first of all, because there is no greater reality at any moment of our Christian life, there is no greater reality than the recognition that Jesus is resurrected, ascended, ruling Lord above every other reality, above every other authority. He is the most imminent and transcendent reality that there is. When we lose sight of that, we start to slip into distraction and sin. If you find yourself in sin and distraction, then you can reason that you have lost sight of that. Jesus being ultimate Lord in every sense is the most imposing, necessary, fundamental reality in the world. But secondly, is that Jesus is speaking to a church that is basically dead. He's speaking to a church that is all but in its grave with the last few handfuls of dirt to be thrown on top of it. And Jesus is looking down at this corpse of a church, this lukewarm church, and he's saying, I'm the one who has the power to recreate the universe. You seen any of those Hubble telescope images? Yeah, you've just explored my right pinky. I've got an entire universe in my hand that you cannot comprehend, and with a word, I'll recreate it all. I have that power. I even have the power to extract the curse from it and bring in new covenant blessings to it. You think that this creating God, this new creation able Jesus is then going to look at a dying church and think that they're too far gone? This church is meant to see Jesus face to face, eye to eye at this moment as he introduces himself and realize no matter how much he condemns us, no matter how bad the prognosis is and how bad his diagnosis is of our state, there's no such thing as a church too dying or dead that he can't bring life to it. This is the God of the new creation, Jesus Christ. I know we're 10 minutes in and only one verse in, but I don't promise to pick up pace. But we're in verse, verse 15 now. Let's look at verse 15 and 16. Here we see lukewarm Laodicea. He says, I know your works. You're neither caught nor hold. Would that you were either caught or hold, but because you're lukewarm and neither caught nor hold. What? <laughs> All right. He will spit you out of his mouth. <laughs> I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, now here's the idea. Sometimes we can get the idea... I've got to make sure I say it right now. <laughs> that hot is on fire for Jesus and cold is in complete unbelief. And Jesus is saying, I really don't mind which it is. I just want cold or hot. Not what's going on. Mostly, Jesus is just pulling on the imagery of the, the, the surrounding suburbs and cities of Laodicea. Upstream in Hierapolis, there was hot springs in, uh, in that town. And they were able to have hot, heated naturally steamed water, which was proven to have medicinal health benefits, uh, killing of bacteria and all sorts of things. And then downstream a bit or, 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 or in a different direction and area, there was Colossae, and Colossae had very cold, fresh water. 
that was also at least not bad for you, but better for you than the third alternative, which is what Laodicea had. With no natural springs in their midst, they would form large conduits to the surrounding cities and ship in or, or tunnel into their city the water from either Hierapolis or Colossae. And, and it was by the time it reached them, lukewarm. And not only lukewarm, but polluted by the, by the, the, the pipes that had been built and, and, and bacteria was allowed to grow. So what's the image? That, that Laodicea is now this, this place that when you come, it's, it's neither healthy because it's hot, it's not healthy because it's cold. You drink it, not only is it not great for you, it's making you sick. It's an emetic. It will make you hurl. The more you drink, the sicker you become. And how upside down this image is of what Jesus has spoken through the prophets like Isaiah. Again, we'll keep on going back to Isaiah tonight. Where in Isaiah 55, the prophet said, speaking of the gracious salvation of God, Isaiah chapter 55 verse 1, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Verse 6, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Here's the, here's the spiritual interpretation of come and drink water that you're buying without any money. Is come to the Lord so that you may be saved. Verse 7, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Instead of the church being the faithful witness who so zealously and faithfully proclaims the gospel so that the lost world can come in and receive the life-giving waters, Laodicea was lukewarm, putrid, and bad for you. It was giving you a toxic, killing gospel. The gospel. The gospel had been perverted. The gospel had been ignored or preached with such little urgency or, or it became a, a side tangential topic that some of the people at the church could still define. And so non-Christians were coming in. They would seek in their thirst, in their lostness, in their death of sin, they would come and what they were given to drink was a lukewarm, sickening, putrid liquid that would cause them to throw up. And so Jesus says to them, because you're like this, I throw you up. You make me sick. Verse 17. We start getting an idea at exactly what it was that their lukewarmness was manifesting as. The sins that they were committing and allow, allowing to, to grow. Verse 17. Jesus says, For you say, I am rich. That, that's kind of a quote from Hosea. I believe chapter 12, where God says against the adulterous, whoring Israel, who says, how can we be under God's cursing? How can we be doing the wrong thing? We're rich. I named and claimed. I prayed and received. God's obviously blessing us. We're rich. So here Jesus says to his adulterous church, you say, I am rich. For I have prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich in white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. There is different ways that their complacency and pride had begun to manifest and it is immediately 
wrapped up in, or it's immediately evident that it, it had been a, their pride and complacency had caused compromises that had led to their worldly blessing. That's no, 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 no gold stars for anybody that can remember the fact that every church that is faithful in these letters is suffering terribly. Every church that is holding fast to the gospel and fast to the Christian ethic and not compromising with the idols and not compromising with the Jewish persecutors, any church that does that, their life sucks. They're poor, they're suffering, they're getting killed, they're in tribulation. So as soon as we hear, especially with the throwback to Hosea 12, where they're told that their riches are all received through compromise, now that Jesus is saying to a church, You're in, you've got issues. And she responds back, don't think so. I'm rich in a pagan world. What we're seeing here is that they are deeply compromised to receive that wealth. There's no way that they can be being faithful Christians in their town and also rich. As soon as you start living the ethics, the commands that Jesus had commanded unto his church, you start losing out of the economic wealth of the town. But later see particularly, we see three things that Jesus uh, refers to here. They're gold their clothing, and their eye cells. In Laodicea, they were a very, very wealthy town. Uh, uh, there, was, there was wealth because of their large deposits of and accumulation of gold. Just a, less than a decade before this book, the book of Revelation was written, Laodicea had suffered a, a horrible earthquake that had flattened the city. And usually one of the perks of being in the empire of Rome is that you can Log into, uh, log into Senelik and, and apply that the Roman Empire would come and rebuild your town. Well, they wouldn't do that. They refused to line up at the Senelik of the Roman Empire, and they said, we don't need your money, Rome. Stuff you. We can do it. Don't help us. They rebuilt themselves from the ground up with their own gold. It was a great point of pride for the Laodiceans to be so wealthy. And it's no different in the church. The church is wealthy because of their compromised, guilty, sinful economic trades. They're unholy, impure, impoverished activities, and therefore Jesus is saying, you are actually dirt poor. You call yourself rich, but you are in fact wretched, pitiable, and poor. Therefore, he says, while they are materially wealthy and spiritually poor, he therefore, in kind of a, a quote to Isaiah 55, come and buy from me, we can put in the brackets, without money, you who have nothing, come and buy from me gold refined by fire so then you can be rich. He says gold refined by fire instead of just gold because gold refined by fire is pure gold in contrast with their impure riches. Come and get from me holy riches, which often means less earthly money. Often the, 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 the person who is spiritually rich in the Lord will have less capabilities, especially in a pagan world, to reap in the riches of the world that they live in. And yet Jesus was commanding them this, that, that though you're physically fine, as Isaiah cried out, those who have nothing, and only those who have nothing are called to Jesus. Because first he says, you have nothing. So only those who believe me are then welcome to come and receive from my riches heavenly blessings, forgiveness, adoption, the spirit, sanctification, complete justification before God. Those are the riches that Jesus is putting on offer, which to those who are in tune with the, with the wealth of the world, that's not all that appetizing. And yet that is his offer and his command. Secondly, Laodicea 
is spoken of here as having the, the, the they're told to, to come and buy the white garments from Jesus. This is because in Laodicea, there was a, uh, a, a very rich and thriving textile trade of naturally black wools. A very glossy, nice, fine, pompous black wool that was local to them. And therefore, anybody showing off their wealth would be wearing all black, nice, the, the stuff you get in Laodicea, Laodicean wool. And here is Jesus saying <coughs> to them, that though you are known across the empire for that, to me, you are naked. Your clothing from the outside seems to set you apart, but God sees through the eyes of Jesus, Jesus sees in judgment that this church is in fact naked. They impress many other people, but before him, they are entirely unimpressive. If you were to track, and we won't do it tonight, but if we were to track all of the, the themes and uses of the imagery of nudity in the Old Testament and New Testament, one of the themes that is just on the other side of the coin of nudity and nakedness is shame. The shame of nakedness. Anybody, anybody's ever sh naked in front of a judge or, or the woman dragged naked in front of Jesus or, or, or whatever it would be? Anybody that, Jesus, that God is judging and says, you're like a naked woman thrown onto the ground after being taken away from your spiritual adulterers? Again, Hosea and Ezekiel and the rest. That's all language for utter shame. Have you, have you ever... Imagine what that would be like to be, to be naked in front of everybody you know or worse yet, the king of kings. Shame was that first thing spoken of when we were told. This is why it has to be said. Genesis 2, the man and the woman were together and they were naked. You read that and you're thankful for the next line. But there was no shame. Because we read that and go, they just met each other. They're nude. That's awkward. No. No, see, because in the curse we have been given this, this interwoven conscience that God would say to us to be uncovered, to be vulnerable, to be seen without defense is utter shame because you're a shameful being. But Jesus is saying, I see you all like that. You're not clothed like he has spoken in so many ways throughout the letters. You're not clothed in my righteousness. You're not clothed in the good deeds of the saints. That There are like a fine white garment that make you look beautiful and worthy to serve in the presence of God. You're not like that, Laodicea. You claim clout in the eyes of the world, but you are in fact naked. Adam and Eve, when they had sinned, the first response, at least humanly, was, was to run and hide themselves because of the shame of their nakedness. It was one of the first things God picked up in his conversation. Who, who told you you were naked and why is that now an issue unless there is something to hide from and, and something to hide because of? And so they had done what we all do, what Laodicea had done and gone, I am naked and I am shameful before God, but there's some way somehow that I can muster something up that will, that will keep some kind of separation between me and my judgment and vulnerability. And so they did what we do. They sewed for themselves fig leaves of their own making to try and hide their shame. And God came down and said, that is a shameful attempt. What did he do? He butchered some animal and gave to them clothing made from the skin. The very first blood sacrifice before the very first sinners showing, no matter what you do, you will never have enough in and of yourself to be able to clothe you in your nakedness. That is why Jesus says, come to me. I have the white garments. You have the black garments, the soiled garments, the filthy garments that I will not accept. I've asked for white and you're wearing black. Kind of the opposite sides of the spectrum. All that we can bring is further sins to be judged by. And then thirdly, he says, <coughs> he calls them blind and says, come to him and buy 
the salve to anoint their eyes so that they may see. Also in Laodicea was an ophthalmological school and a world-famous eye salve that, that you could apply and restore sight and kill infections and all of that. And here's Jesus saying to them, also, very impressive that everyone knows you for that. Very good for you that you feel pretty secure because your funds won't ever go down the drain. You've got, you've got a system in your church and maybe you've got ophthalmologists in your church. And you, you don't have anything to be afraid of. Famine, all that. You're rich. You've got means of wealth. You've got health. And Jesus says, no, you are blind. And they, they're probably satisfied. I mean, at this point, they probably don't mind all these things because who they love, the world, sees them as clothed and rich and seeing. Their opinion of Jesus is very low. That's why they got to this point. Yet Jesus is saying, you can't see anything. This is part of our spiritual blindness in sin. We can't see how naked we are. We log into our spiritual bank account and our blindness tells us it's full to the brim. I'm doing very well. I'm very impressive. I'm quite righteous. And when Jesus says that he will give us spiritual sight, the first thing we see is our own nakedness and the emptiness of our account before God. Absolute poverty, and therefore the gospel call of Jesus was, and is, and will ever be. Come to me with empty hands, naked clothes, and blind eyes. I will give you spiritual sight, clothing to cover your nakedness, and riches fit for kings. This is what Jesus says to the Laodicean church, and calls them to repent. Verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and Repent. How, how backwards is this to what we usually think? What's the sign of God's love? The blessing, the ease of life, the comfort, the, the things don't go wrong for me like it goes wrong for other people, that Jesus never speaks harshly to me like he speaks to other people, that I'm never yelled at, I'm never, never thrown into affliction to bring me out more holy. No, God loves me. Friends, that worldly blessing without spiritual calls to holiness is in fact the hatred of God. It's the do as you please, I will pass over you. I will not pursue you. Do what your free will desires. The love of Jesus, especially to his church, the love of Jesus is manifested much of the time in a pursuit of zealous rebuke, reproving and and disciplining so that we would in turn be zealous in our repentance. He says, so I'm standing here. Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. Anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him and he with me. Out of the bitterness that that had accumulated in between the relationship between Laodicea and Rome, one of the commentators throws at this and goes, what had happened was Rome would send soldiers to cities and they had to be billeted out in citizens' homes. And whenever they come to your door and they knock on your door, you have to open it to them and you have to put them up and feed them and give them whatever they need. Now, of course, the note slid underneath the table in the Laodicean district was, make it hard for those Laodiceans. They don't need us. You show them who's boss. You go in, you extract as much as you can, you bleed them dry, then you move on to the next house. You take all that gold they're so very proud of. This commentator says, and here is Jesus giving giving. The same command, and yet the command on its head. I'm now knocking on your door, not some Roman soldier. I'm the king of kings. I'm the God of the amen, the God of the new creation. I'm knocking on your door. But what what will happen when I enter? If any dead, dying, sinful, blind, naked, poor sinner in church 
would ever hear the knock of Jesus, the call to repent and turn away from worldliness and lukewarmness and allow their heart to be broken in by the King of Kings, what will happen then is not that he comes in and shames you and condemns you and presses you down, but Jesus himself said in John chapter 3 that I came into the world not to condemn it, but that the world might be saved through me. And here is Jesus, unlike the Roman soldiers coming in and, and taking and stealing, but coming in and setting the table, eating with us and us eating with him, to whoever will be zealous and repent, who will not wait and continue on in sin and keep on making excuses and, and keep on recognizing that you have a reputation and keep on enjoying all of the earthly blessings that you've accumulated through your compromise. No, be zealous. And whatever it would take, economically, financially, socially, your reputation, your family, whatever it would cost you to repent, let that be counted as nothing. Jesus has the riches you need. Let it be counted as nothing. Jesus has the clothing that you need. Jesus has the salve that will heal your soul's eyes. It's as if Jesus is now saying, come, whoever thirsts, come to the waters, and he who is hungry, come without money, come buy and eat, come buy wine and milk. From Isaiah 55. Or tonight, would you hear this? That Jesus would say to you, wherever you are at, however you are identifying your Christian walk, whatever sin you've been tolerating or allowing, that Jesus would say to you, seek the Lord while he may be found. In other words, zealously. You're not promised tomorrow. You're not promised 10 more years, five for further sinning and five for holiness. You're commanded now. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Do not run to the door so long after it was knocking. And then like the Song of Solomon's, open the door and realize my lover is gone that he gave you time to repent and then moved away and now you seek repentance with tears and yet you cannot be saved. Repent zealously while the Lord can be found. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man he thought. See how willing Jesus is to receive all kinds of sinners. Sinners who are in the Laodicean situation claiming to be Christian and defiling his reputation. Sinners who have never been Christian before. Sinners who are of the worst kinds, Jesus opens the door, or rather knocks at the door and invites, come to me, let me come to you. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. The promise of the gospel, even applied to Laodicea, is found here for us tonight. Have you laid hold of it? Have you swung open the door in zeal and in desperation that Jesus would come in, both to your heart? Is this how you think of the church, that we always ought to be in the sense of waiting, hearing, leaning into the sound of Jesus' knock so that we can change and repent however we need to change in order to be found holy, righteous, faithful witnesses to the Lord Jesus Christ? And in this great motivation, you see this, this promise that Jesus gives to the conquerors. Jesus says, in verse 21. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. There has been so many amazing promises in these letters. This just about seems to be the most unthinkable because we've heard that we're in his kingdom and we've heard that Jesus will rule and reign through us. And we've heard that we have the rod of iron with Jesus and all of those amazing gospel of the kingdom realities. But you'd never think that we would be told to sit with Jesus on his own throne, which is the throne of the almighty God, his father. 
as Jesus was the faithful witness, the faithful messenger, the faithful Messiah who died for our sins and rose triumphantly and then ascended and he went and sat on his father's throne. And now he is saying to those who likewise conquer, now there is a difference. He conquered by his own merits. He conquered by his own strength. He conquered by his own perfections. But now he is calling us to conquer not in our own strength, our own merits, our own perfection of obedience, but we conquer, as John would say, 1 John, the weapon that we have which conquers the world is our faith. Those who have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ are so united to him that we conquer the world. We repent of our sin. The temptations of the world, their money, their eye salve, their clothing, whatever it is. The hooks don't sink in us anymore. We conquer, we, we trample those temptations and we are found with Jesus on his throne, on the Father's throne. The throne which has no other throne above, beyond or behind it. It is the throne of all authority and Jesus invites us there. Yes, Jesus has been so cutting and so harsh with the Laodicean church. But so it is that God would have us taste the bitterness of our sin so that in the extremity of the pain, the extremity of the healing might be made more evident. Are they a vomit-worthy church? Yes. Are they minced corn and mince? Yeah. Are they a disgusting, putrid, acidic smell? Are they the thing that when you enter into it, if you are holy, you are repulsed? Yes. No apologies from Jesus. And yet does the one who promises the power of new creation offer to them the seating down on the throne above every other throne such that we can partake in the new creation covenant that Jesus is pouring out through his grace in the gospel? Absolutely. There is no one too far gone. There is no church too dead or lukewarm that the grace of God is outside of your reach or that you are outside of the reach of the grace of God. This is what it means to conquer. Repent of your sin, lay hold of Jesus Christ. And then go on trusting him and go on repenting of your sin. I don't know explicitly and particularly what each of your sins are, but you do. And Jesus does. And of each of them and of all of them, the command is to repent with the promise of ever-flowing grace. In Revelation chapter 21, and I'd like us to turn there as we, we end up the, the seven letters Chapter 1's introduction. Next week we'll be in chapter 4, touching a little bit on chapter 5 to close us out. But as we finish, at least the letters. Chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, and coming down from heaven, uh, coming down from heaven out of heaven from my God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. We looked at this last week. This is language of the church being made holy and perfect and coming to the earth so that God is dwelling with man in the gospel church. And verse three says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Verse five. And he who was seated on the throne that we just heard about and were invited to said, behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down for these are the words of the trustworthy and true. 
And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give him the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. Did we not see all of those themes picked up in this letter to Laodicea? A new heaven, new earth that has started. Is much of that yet to come? For sure in fulfillment. Has all of that started? Absolutely. Or Jesus couldn't have offered what he offered to the Laodicean church. Sitting on his throne, taking from the water of life that is without payment. Jesus, the beginning of the new creation and yet the warning comes in verse 8. This glorious kingdom promises is held out to those who will forsake their own clothing, their own riches, their own sins. Verse 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Jesus' invitation is now. For anybody professing Christian or not Christian at all, too young to have experienced a conversion reality before and now inquiring wherever you are at, if the conviction of the Holy Spirit on your heart is that you have laid long sleeping in your unrepentance and sin, Jesus is knocking, come and receive the grace of the gospel. And to those who have, hold fast to this promise. Persevere in faithfulness and endurance and that throne that Jesus now sits on is where we live, live from, and will go to. To God be the glory for his grace. Let's pray. Father God, we seek and we long to be a church of individuals and to be individuals who can avoid all of the rebuke that we've just read to Laodicea. We would feel, Lord, we, we wish we were holy and in tune with your spirit enough to shake at the idea of hearing those words from you. And yet, Lord, we need your Holy Spirit to bring us to a sensitivity against sin so that we don't get there. We need you to bring us to a sensitivity against worldliness because our natural bent and our, our normal inclination and proclivity is to drift back to the lukewarm temperature that offends no one, that, that changes nothing for the kingdom. Father God, we pray. We pray that you would make each one of us sensitive to your spirit and to, the, and to the, the temptations of sin so that we can kill that sin, so that we can repent and particularly, Lord, that we can throw off the temporal, truly useless and impoverished temptations of our world towards riches and acceptance and high reputation and consideration of people and pleasures of the flesh. I pray, Lord God, that we would be willing to see them as impoverished as they are and the only true riches that we can lay hold of are those which last forever. Obedience to the Lord our God, holding fast to Jesus in the gospel and being used by him to bring other souls into the kingdom. Father God, I pray that as these grand realities are promised in uh, and are founded in the promises of the Old Testament and that reach so far into the, into the future, would you give to us a cosmic, all history encompassing, exalted view of the Lord Jesus Christ? That the gospel is not just something that applies to me, me personally, my privatized faith that I ought not share or push on others or expect much out of, but that we would be devoted to seeing your glory spread over the earth as much as the water does the seas. Father God, though, though relatively small, though, though relatively young, though relatively 
unimpressive would you use this church to establish your purposes and your glory in the earth that people would place their faith in Jesus Christ through our testimony because he is worthy. God, save people in our midst. Give to them new hearts that believe in Christ by faith. We pray all of this in the name of our exalted Lamb and Savior, Jesus Christ. And everybody said, Amen.